Hi, and welcome to Spilling Chai. I'm your host, Anisha Hussain. You may know me as the Bangladeshi American cable news commentator who debates toxic masculinity with Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Or maybe you've read my articles on CNN about toxic white supremacy. While I may be a pro at giving my opinion and analysis on the headlines, something you don't get to hear me do is ask the questions and talk about something other than the news. And that's what I'm all about doing right now, because between coronavirus, a global lockdown, and social isolation, my Persian cats and I need a break. This podcast, Billing Chai, is about conversations. I want to feel inspired, and radio is such a great medium to have really in-depth conversations and to take the time to have them. In this show, I'm going to be talking to brilliant writers, passionate activists, and amazing artists, and I want you to join us. This podcast is also a PSA on behalf of all brown people that in most of the Asia and the Middle East, chai is not a latte. Instead, it's the best kind of tea. And on this podcast, we are all about spilling it. So pour yourself a cup and pull up a seat. Hello, my dear listeners. Welcome to episode nine of Spilling Chai. If I close my eyes and try really, really hard, I can kind of think back to 2016, a time pre-corona and pre-Trump when election campaigns were at fever pitch, the race for the White House was nearing the finish line, and everybody thought Hillary Clinton had the presidency in the bag. Ah, those were the days. Even though people, especially people of color, were sounding the alarm about the real dangers a Trump presidency could bring, too many of us just didn't take him seriously and thought there was no way he'd actually win the election. Well, today's guest, Sarah Kenzior, was never a part of that crowd. The American journalist, author, anthropologist, researcher, and scholar is widely credited with being the first person to call Donald Trump's election victory in 2016, and she predicted his rise years ago. Kenzior garnered national attention for her reporting and commentary during events in Ferguson in 2014. She is the New York Times bestselling author of The View from Flyover Country, which explores labor issues, racism, gentrification, media bias, and other subjects connected to the election of President Donald Trump. Kenzior is also the co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast and has written for Al Jazeera, The Guardian, Foreign Policy, Mary Claire, The Boston Globe, and other outlets. She frequently appears on MSNBC's AM Joy, the cable news show where we once appeared together on a panel on authoritarian states. I will never forget that. It was a live on-air education listening to Sarah's analysis. If you watch that segment even now, you can see my mind being blown on live TV by Kenzior's brilliance. In 2017, Kenzior was labeled a must-follow journalist. Her new book, Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America, is out now, and she is our guest today. Hello, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us on Spilling Chai. So you have a PhD in anthropology and wrote your dissertation about Uzbekistan's authoritarian dictatorship. Where did this interest of yours develop? Oh, gosh. Well, as an undergraduate, I studied the former Soviet Union in Eastern Europe. I was a history major. And so I'd always had some interest in the region, but it was really 
right after college when I was working at the New York Daily News, uh, and this was during 9-11, and there were so many articles about the war in Afghanistan that mentioned surrounding countries where the U.S. and military bases like Kyrgyzstan or Uzbekistan, and there were so many errors in the articles. Part of my job was fact-checking them. And just through that process, I became more interested in the region. I'd always been interested in dictatorships and authoritarian regimes. I did not think that the end point of this knowledge would be using them to study my own country, but that is how things have worked out. The images of the early days of corona in America, of nurses and doctors without basic PPE, have been seen all over the world. There seems to be a general consensus on the incompetence of this administration's handling of the pandemic, but you call Trump's lack of action malice. What makes you say that? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, almost all of his actions regarding how he treats the American public, how he treats their well-being, have been malice. There are things that he's incompetent at. Just generally speaking, the question that needs to be asked is incompetent at what? Because Trump is not some sort of geopolitical mastermind, but he is somebody who is a seasoned criminal. He's somebody who has been tied to the mafia. He is somebody who is overtly sadistic. He has announced his sadistic plans in advance multiple times, reacted to tragedies with glee and with a desire for profit, like a typical corporate raider disaster capitalist, which is what he was and what he was trained to be by people like uh, his mentors, Roy Cohn or Carl Icahn. You saw this attitude after 9-11 when his gut reaction to the collapse of the World Trade Center was that his buildings were bigger. You've seen it in every financial crisis where he literally said, people like me do very well. I'm very excited about this. In 2014, he said that he wanted complete disaster, economic collapse, and riots in the streets to make America great again. And then, of course, throughout his administration, we saw what happened with Hurricane Maria, where they didn't provide medical supplies. They lied about the death toll. We've seen him lie about statistics, both in terms of details, but also literally inventing hurricanes with Sharpies. I mean, it goes on and on. And when you're asking about motive, this is somebody who is surrounded by Republican backers seeking autocratic consolidation, seeking a one-party state, no regard for rule of law. That was made even more abundantly clear yesterday with the Flynn ruling and through the actions of Bill Barr. And they are going to use this moment. Autocrats never waste a crisis. And many of them, people like Steve Bannon, have openly said that chaos is the route to it. So I never expected him to do anything except exploit this pandemic for maximum pain on the American people and maximum power for himself. You pretty much foresaw everything that is happening now. You warned us very specifically of the political landscape that we find ourselves in today. Is Trump's America better or worse than you imagined? It's worse in the sense that the response to what Trump and his inner circle have done has been worse than what I predicted. Trump has done everything I wrote that he would do back in 2015, 2016. It's very predictable. Many of these things are just the autocrats' playbook. You know, you purge agencies, you pack courts. Trump has been a public figure for 40 years, and he's a predictable public figure in his behavior. We know what drives him. We know he wants money, he wants power, he wants immunity from prosecution. I thought that the Republican Party would put up a weak opposition to him. I didn't think it would cave completely and be so openly complicit in his actions. And the more research I did, 
into the Republican Party and especially into their connections to transnational crime, the more alarmed I became. I also thought the Democrats would put up more of a fight. Ironically, I think the first two years of the administration, they did. That's why we had the blue wave in 2018. We saw grassroots activism blooming. We're still seeing that. But in terms of how the House has reacted, the reluctance to impeach, the narrow scope of that impeachment, the refusal to go after him for everything from migrant abuse at the Texas border and camps or emoluments or all of these other just incredible offenses. The fact that they had to be dragged kicking and screaming to impeachment only because Trump was attacking a political rival, that's very shameful. And I don't think it's the whole Democratic Party. Many representatives have been very good, but the leadership has been tremendously ineffective in standing up to what is an existential threat in this administration. Why do you think that is? I mean, I keep coming back to this. You know, I grew up in Dhaka in Bangladesh, and this idea I still have of America as this beacon of law and order is so ingrained in me from watching American movies and TV shows. And now to see the kind of corruption we are seeing. I mean, remember when Republicans wanted to impeach Obama over his tan suit? How did we go from that to Trump just getting away with everything? Did we romanticize America? Oh, definitely. I think America was romanticized. And I say that I've lived here my entire life. And we're seeing that now with Black Lives Matter and the reaction to Confederate statues and the realization that we've been memorializing and honoring people who were traitors. And we have always had corruption. We've always had systemic autocratic practices aimed selectively at parts of the population whether slavery, the genocide of Native Americans, internment camps for Japanese, Jim Crow laws. We have had these tendencies. They just weren't the dominant form. And we've moved toward progress. You know, this has been a tremendous step backwards. I think what's unique about Trump and his administration is the connection to transnational organized crime. This crime is linked primarily, but not exclusively, to the Kremlin. Trump is a Kremlin asset in the sense that his actions in the foreign policy and domestic policy decisions that he makes are aimed at benefiting Putin, Russian oligarchs, other oligarchs. You certainly see him and those surrounding him, people like Kushner, making decisions to benefit people like MBS or Netanyahu far more than the American people. Trump is a money launderer. That's what he's been doing for decades. And that's why the Russian mafia found him advantageous in the 1990s when they were expanding their operations abroad. What I keep wondering again is where did this institutional failure come from at such a massive scale where you have everything from the FBI to intelligence agencies to the Obama administration and honestly, you know, the George W. Bush and Clinton administrations all failing to stop the infiltration of organized crime into our government, into giant corporations. It built up upon itself. You know, my new book, Hiding in Plain Sight, is about that. It's a history of the last 40 years kind of going beyond what our typical assertions were of what happened. Because we know that there is a spread in dark money. We know that there is a rise in white-collar corruption. But just how violent and how disturbing it is, things like 
Jeffrey Epstein and his role both as a pedophile sex trafficker, but also somebody intimately involved with heads of state, with espionage. It's a very disturbing story. I feel like I don't know large parts of it. I would recommend reading my work in tandem with others because it's so enormous. And a lot of it just went below the radar. It wasn't being investigated. I think the gutting of media and especially of investigative journalism has been a huge problem for the last basically, I don't know, 20 years, but especially since 2008. We lost a lot of our journalists. And with that, we lost accountability and we lost even just this sense of These people need to be rooted out and they need to be held accountable or they'll just keep committing crimes. And that's why we saw people like Manafort or Roger Stone or Bill Barr in the exact same positions, helping the same GOP crime circles for 40 straight years. In 2016, you wrote in Foreign Policy that, quote, For over a year, pundits, especially Republicans who have a stake in legitimizing their party's abject surrender, have been claiming that Trump will eventually pivot from his extremist positions. But this is not a regular election, and Trump is never going to pivot. What Trump is doing, and has been doing all along, is pivoting Americans towards his bigoted and paranoid worldview. Here we are four years after you wrote those words, Sarah. Do you think Trump has pivoted Americans towards his views or exposed them for sharing his views maybe all along, especially on race? Yeah, I think it's both. I think it's certainly been an illuminating time and people's racism, their xenophobia, their tolerance of institutional corruption and of just brutal policies. It's been exposed and analyzed in new angles. And I'm hoping what it leads to is kind of a systematic overhaul, kind of along the lines that Elizabeth Warren was talking about, of really rooting out this rot and cleaning out agencies and institutions that have been corrupted for a long time. I do think, though, that Trump is unique. I don't think there's really anybody comparable. We've had corrupt presidents many times. Um, you know, most recently we had Nixon, we had George W. Bush. I don't think we've seen an anti-American president in this way, a president who has zero interest in working for the American people or even pretending that he has any interest in serving the public. And that has become normalized. People have come to lose their expectations of not just what a president should do, but what any elected official could do. And it's led to cults. It's led to personality cults, obviously around Trump, you know, with the QAnon phenomenon, but also around others, around Mueller, around Pelosi, around James Comey, most recently around Dr. Fauci. Like they find these pseudo saviors, these people who they just think are going to make everything right. And they cling to that instead of to the Constitution, to law, to the fact that public servants are supposed to serve the public. They're not doing us a favor. They're doing their job, or at least they're supposed to be doing their job. They haven't been doing their jobs. And that's a problem. And, you know, and along with that, I think it's just been this ongoing assault on truth and facts and reality itself. We live in an era where there are conspiracy theories, some of which are devised by Trump's team for this purpose as propaganda, but then stories that are so horrifying and so kind of unbelievable, things like Jeffrey Epstein's entire life story, that people instantly think, well, that can't be true. If that were true, somebody would have stopped it. I would have heard about it earlier. On and on it goes. 
it's a lot to take in. And so I think that we've just been kind of knocked off our feet. I think the pandemic is making this much worse. It's making people stir crazy, very afraid, very anxious, sometimes violent. And those are all understandable reactions, but it makes it very dangerous when we're also in a politically heated time. You and I are both mothers. You recently said in an interview about traveling across the country with your kids that I want my children to really understand our history and to understand that Americans have always had a lot of fight in us. We do fight back. We just need to be more innovative in that fight. Do you think we are fighting back hard enough? Are you hopeful? Will America survive Trump? I mean, I don't really think about things in terms of hope or hopelessness. You know, I think about it in terms of obligation, of perseverance, of I can control how I react to this situation. And I can certainly do my job as a journalist and inform people what's going on and encourage them to fight back. I do think people have been fighting back. I think ordinary citizens have. And, you know, we've seen these mass protests, which I think is important. We've seen these public displays of repudiation. I think the biggest failure, again, it lies in those who have the most power, the most ability to change this. They're refusing to do so. They were timid in even calling this out. They wouldn't call it an autocratic threat. They won't call it organized crime. They often won't call it crime at all. They won't call a lie a lie. They won't call a racist a racist. What and we is finally that? I am so I sorry. I'm so sorry to interrupt. No, but go what on. Is that because It's so crazy. I feel like now, finally, after George Floyd's murder, people are like, oh, it's not racially tinged. It's not (laughs) racially charged. It's racist. But for so long, people of color, we were saying this. We were saying Trump is a racist. The white supremacists consider him one of their own. Mm -hmm. Why did it take Americans so long to say it? Why can't we just call a racist a racist? Yeah, it's been very frustrating. And it's been white Americans, white editors, white reporters that are making this decision. And, you know, I've experienced this firsthand as a journalist. And I'm not sure I've talked about this before, but like, I've noticed a tremendous difference when I have an editor who's a person of color versus when I have an editor who's white because I don't have to convince an editor who's not white that racism exists, that white supremacists are a threat, that people who claim white supremacy are in fact white supremacists, that this is not a scandalous or outlandish description of that individual. It is just who they say they are, and it's reflected in their actions. White editors would get very nervous. Sometimes it would be maybe for legal reasons, fear of litigation. But I think it's fear. It's like shame or worry about admitting the scope of this problem, worrying that this is possible. I mean, I don't understand it because I feel like we have this problem. It's enormous. It's been here for as long as our country's existed. If we don't talk about it in plain terms, we are never going to solve it. And isn't your goal to solve it? Aren't you at least on the side of solving it and trying to make life more fair and more just. And, you know, I'm very glad that black journalists are coming out and talking about their experiences in journalism and about this culture of self-censorship and intimidation and where it's not like they'll outright fire you, but your career opportunities will be limited. That career ladder will be taken away from you. 
And I hope that that changes because it's beneficial for everyone, not just for the journalists themselves, but for truth, for our ability to speak clearly and plainly. You know, I'm honestly disgusted at this point when I see them refusing to call people like Trump or Stephen Miller a racist or Jeff Sessions back when he was attorney general. Like, we know who they are. We know their career history. We have statements and supporting evidence to back this up. And it's pathetic. I hope we have finally arrived at this point. And it also with terms relating to police brutality. Like, I don't want to hear officer-involved shooting as if the officer were just standing there and the bullet magically flew on its own. Like, I want to know who did what to who and why. So hopefully we'll go in that direction. How do you decompress? What does Sarah Kenzior do for self-care? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's been really hard lately because the things that I liked to do have mostly been closed off to me because of the pandemic. You know, I used to like to go to concerts. I love to go on road trips. I love to travel. And just to have that to look forward to meant something to me. I could think, okay, just get through this week, get through this article, and then you get rewarded later. And with like the future sort of absent, you know, visions of the future. That's a hard thing. But I've been spending time outside when the weather's good. I go hiking. I've actually been doing this thing where whenever it's a new moon, we drive out somewhere in Missouri that has really dark sky and you can see the Milky Way. And so that's been the thing that I've kind of looked forward to every month is like just hoping for a clear night with a new moon where I can see stars. And I'm like, okay, not even the Trump administration can take this away from me. And so we all drive out as a family and my kids have enjoyed that. How old are your kids? 13 and 9. What are you working on now? You have your book out, you're promoting your book. What's making you want to spill the tea, spill the chai? I mean, I've mostly been working on Gaslit Nation, my podcast that I do with Andrea Chalupa. It's grown quite a bit. And we've honestly been in such a crazy time. Like the book came out, but I didn't have a tour. So I've had to do other things to promote it because of the pandemic. And it's been very exhausting. So I found it easier to concentrate on the show because it's processing events as they happen week to week. We also do interviews and stuff to give more historic context. But it's so hard to think of future projects. I am working with Andrea on a book about dictatorship, a graphic novel actually that's aimed at teaching young people how dictatorships form, what are the signs to look out for, how it's transpired in other countries in different time periods, so that we are not in this situation again where people are blinded by American exceptionalism or they lack historical knowledge. We're trying to make something that I don't want to exactly say it's fun to read because it's about dictatorship, but you know, easy, accessible, interesting, engaging, that kind of thing. Like, not a drag, like, not a big haul. I mean, I love, like, Hannah Rent or something, but not, like, reading Hannah Rent. We want something that, like, a 15-year-old could pick up and be like, oh, yeah, this is really interesting to me. So that's our goal, and we're working on that now, and hopefully it'll be out early next year. America has always seemed so unbreakable to me. Strong, steady, and powerful. Checks, balances, accountability. So many things made this country thrive. Seeing the U.S. so weak and vulnerable right now between politics and the pandemic is scary. Sometimes it makes me angry. I want America to pick herself up and get her act together. Then I remember that right now we are so sick and effectively leaderless. And even though it feels like we are more divided than ever, now is the time we need each other the most. Stay safe out there, my dear listeners. Wear your mask. Don't mess with corona. And remember that the pandemic is not over just because you're bored. 
Stay vigilant. And until next time, let's keep brewing the chai.